I am finding being alive fascinating. Oh. Welcome back to the Film Hole podcast. We're just burping bubbles over here. Did you have any knowledge or expectations? Because I think when I brought this movie up to you, you maybe hadn't even heard of it. Uh, Tell me what your awareness of this movie was. Yeah, basically none. Literally none. Uh, I didn't know that had come out. You you knew who the guy was, though, right? The director. Uh Uh-huh. Yorgos. I've seen The Lobster, seen The Killing of a Sacred Deer. I saw The Favorite. Do you have uh, a favorite, no pun intended, among those that you just listed? Yeah, it's a good question. Also, Dogtooth. I haven't seen that one. Have you seen more of those? I've seen Dogtooth, and I've seen the ones that you just listed, mm. and I think that's it. You know, it's funny. I remember watching The Favorite and not making the connection that it was the same director. The rest of them I saw um, it's the... on my TV, oh, okay. except for Poor Things. Uh, the Favorite's like the biggest departure, I think, from what he had started to set up in those other three movies, right. The Lobster uh sacred deer and dogtooth man i really can't remember too much about dogtooth so i shouldn't speak super conclusively about that one his whole thing is really like stilted performances from his actors yeah uh really like sterilizing the movie from any sort of emotion or inflection it's sort of like uh robots who wrote a play and i really like i don't remember where i heard this Maybe you told me this, or Justin. I like the director's reasoning for that, which is movies are supposed to be, you know, these fantasy things. They are not inherently reality. So realism in movies feels inauthentic to Mm -hmm. what the thing actually is. It's A movie will never be as real as real life, so it's absurd to try to pretend like it ever would be Mm. and try and use realism. So that's why his movies feel like that. Which nice. I think is awesome. I hope I said um, that. That's cool. And I, and the favorite I think is the movie that starts to not do that. Mm-hmm. Like it's the favorite starts to feel more conventional, at least the way that the actors uh, act. Uh, but people really like the favorite, and it just doesn't really resonate with me. It feels like just the most normal movie. <laughs> but I, I think I think I'm just missing something with that movie because. It really resonates with people who I like and respect. Yeah, I think I benefited by not knowing that it was his film, or maybe I didn't know him at the time. Actually, I probably hadn't seen any of his movies at that time, at that period. I saw that in theaters. And so to me, it was just like a period piece movie, expecting Mm -hmm. something kind of typical. And it was a fairly typical movie, but I thought it was good. Yeah, I I did not like it because I I had different expectations. Mm Mm-hmm. This movie, however, uh, Poor Things, I feel like it's a slight return to that, uh, to that idea that movies are not realistic. Everyone in the movie is more of a character than Sacred Deer and Lobster. Like, they have emotions and they reflect, uh, they reflect those emotions. But what this movie does that The Favorite does not is that it's like a totally, like, wacky steampunk a surrealist world yeah which is fucking sick yeah which is different it is based on something it's based on a book oh really tell me Um, about the book 
It is based on a 1992 novel by Alessandria Gray, and that as much as I that's as much as I can parse from the yeah. Wikipedia. Can click on the link if you want. Nah, <laughs> not <that> interested. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, like, first impressions. Like, what did you go into the movie expecting, if anything? No expectations. Completely open mind. But uh, um, I'll just give you like my quick take on it. I, I thought it was like super funny, a really funny movie that was just visually very stunning. And did I mention how funny it was? I mean, I just like the whole theater just was laughing nonstop the whole time. T- totally. I think all of his movies, maybe with the exception of Dogtooth, which again, I can't remember a single scene from that movie, are all kind of funny. And I, I forget that. I think that uh, at a distance, I think about his movies as these cool, like, surrealist sort of mind-bender movies. Uh, but they have straight-up comedy in all of them. Some of that is intentional, and some of that is just a byproduct of the way that that guy makes movies. Certainly The Lobster was pretty funny in its premise. I remember yeah. The Killing of a Sacred Deer being pretty... I don't remember a lot of comedy in that one. It's dark. I think that any comedy in that one, like I said, it just comes from the way that the characters talk to each other. Like, they don't talk like normal people, and that's inherently a little funny. But this one is, like, so, like, funny forward. Like, there's comedic relief moments throughout. Like, very intentional bits. Can you cite any? Um, (laughs) Remember uh, when they're on the ship? There's like that woman whose like hair is on fire and they're kind of like in a, in the middle of a fight or something. And he's like, look, that woman's hair is on fire. And it just like, just a quick <laughs> shot. Yeah. And like people the, like uh, trying to put it out. Yeah. You're so right. This movie is very funny forward. Like the first uh, shot that you really see, we were just talking about it as the, the bubble burping from Willem Dafoe. That was like an immediate laugh out loud thing in the theater for me yeah yeah yeah. it's just because it starts off so slow it's like a it almost looks scary at first because willem dafoe he has those all those scars on his face he looks like frankenstein uh-huh. which is not on accident i'm sure and he starts to make this big like kind of sound that's a good impression it, it, it sounds kind of scary at first and then you see the big bubble come out and it's immediate turned on its head and uh, what stands out about it is that, like, nobody responds to it very much at all. Like, Emma Stone's right. character does. Like, she, like, does a clap. Like, she's pleased. Uh-huh. She thinks it's funny. But just That's a totally right. normal thing he does. His character is very interesting. Yeah, God. Uh, Godfried, I think, is his name. Ah, um, is that where they got the God from? Okay. Yeah, but, I mean, it's uh, it has double meaning, obviously. Because he is this sort of Dr. Frankenstein type of character who... Mm-hmm breathes life into corpses and so he is he is like god just like dr frankenstein so it's it's like this cool like his name is actually god and godfried and emma stone calls him god as a nickname but it she is kind of he is kind of god to her yeah uh there's nothing to it more than just that it's just nice it's clever i guess yeah you're right he is super interesting uh at first like, in the first five minutes of watching this movie, I had a 
kind of a vague understanding that it was kind of like steampunk and I knew that there was like Frankenstein stuff going on like stitching like parts of animals together in the trailer there's that the thing that's on my background right now this like uh, electricity like brain like starter thing uh-huh. and I thought in the first five minutes of watching this movie I thought that uh, Willem Dafoe's character was like canonically Frankenstein's monster like, because, uh, you know, they show him in his big house and they show him at the uh, the university or whatever where Rami, Rami Malek's character shows up. And he's giving a presentation on surgery. Very, like... Do you ever see The Nick, that TV show? No. Uh, but it's like that, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 19th, like 19th century old. surgery yeah. stuff. But he's got all those scars. And I had thought, oh maybe this is Frankenstein's monster. Maybe this is a a universe in which Frankenstein's monster like survived and went on to like be a successful surgeon, which made sense to me because I was like, who would, who would be better at like pioneering (laughs) different types of surgery than fucking Frankenstein's monster. The guy himself is the ultimate surgery experiment. Of course Uh he would like teach at a university on like where all the organs are he knows that makes sense that makes sense yeah. i buy it he's that is not him though that figured out pretty quickly that's not him but it's a fun yeah. idea right yeah 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 he's kind of a mix because like uh you know he is a doctor a man of science himself like frankenstein um but he's also been experimented on and he is, is like very a, yeah, familiar with surgery on totally himself. he's like a hybrid of those two characters yeah the monster and the his his backstory is pretty sad right um with his father the more that you learn about his father the the more sad his his childhood becomes but is the character itself seemingly completely unfazed by in some ways even admires the uh, the way that his father treated him because it was in the name of science uh-huh Except for that one, like the final line that he says about his dad on his deathbed. He's, he says something about something that his dad did uh, in his experiments. And he was like, he was a fucking idiot. And then he <laughs> dies. <laughs> that scene where like they just very, do a very quick surgery on his cancer, like in his abdomen. Yeah. They like do that initial cut and then he sees that like, oh no, it's actually like progressed like quite a bit. There's no need to continue the surgery. He immediately resigns to, to uh, yeah, just let the cancer to death. go at him. Yeah, uh, which is cool because I don't know he he delivers it so nonchalantly. It's like oh yeah, the cancer's like taken over. Like that's it for me. He, he's so like he treats his body as like such a mechanical thing, just like this mechanism i'm sorry i can't i'm super distracted right now i'm like watching a scene nine minutes and 30 seconds in and emma stone is just like fiddling around with this dead cadaver in the lab she's like flicking his penis and then taking a scalpel and just repeatedly stabbing him in the face which i don't remember oh my god the yeah the first time watching that 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 the eye gouging scene with the cadaver is like the whole movie has on and off moments of kind of gruesomeness yeah, as yeah, a yeah. movie about like like a corpse bride would but that one in particular that shot that you were just describing i remember being very viscerally sort of upset by that 
that that in the same like where they're out on the picnic and then rami yusef like has like a frog oh, or something yusef, in his hand not, not malik yeah you're right i said malik earlier but she's just like kill it and she like smashes his hands together yeah 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 smashes the frog yeah so let's just let's just try to structure this a little bit more maybe just like set up the plot line a main cast of characters basically is this uh, frankenstein scientist guy who's like a renowned doctor who does surgeries and he he puts the heads of animals on the bodies of different animals and he experiments on himself and whatnot and then there's emma stone's character who we learn is a, a woman who committed suicide a pregnant woman who jumped off a bridge and then what the doctor basically did you know he likes putting the body parts of things into other things so he took the baby of the brain and he put it into emma stone's body so now she's like mm-hmm. this baby in a grown woman's body crazy concept the way that it it, it teases that too because you see emma stone's character like jump off the bridge right at the beginning you don't know what that is right away but it's revealed you think later. like oh is that a flash forward and then we're flashing back but no that's that happened yeah. chronologically at the beginning it's also in color which is an important distinction, whereas mm. the, the the next like third or maybe half of the movie is in black and white. Forgot about that. The just the the, the idea of like oh yeah this uh, the corpse of this woman washed up in the backyard of the Godfrey character Willem Dafoe, and the baby is still alive. He explains this in some sort of flashback monologue. The baby's still alive. The the mother is dead. And he talks about it as like, what? And I did the most obvious thing that you would do in that situation. And he's explaining it to Rami. And then he very nonchalantly is like, obviously, I put the brain of the baby inside the body of the mother. (laughs) Which is an unbashedly pro-life position, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Any any Republican Uh, would be like, and God bless you for doing it, sir. It's so weird. Just like the, the metaphysical implications of that. Like you are your soul or something is the baby, but you're occupying like your your mother's body, and people recognize you as as your mother. Oh, really, uh, really strange, but also yeah. Funny. And they go and then they approach it from the most uncomfortable angle that they could, which is like, what if this thing then like becomes sexually awakened? What is essentially a baby's Very mind? Very quickly. I guess the adult yeah. horniness is is in the body. Yeah, it's weird because the the time scale sexual organs are mature. They cheated a little bit because they the, the time scales um, are vastly accelerated from what a normal child would be. Where it's like she in the very beginning is basically like a toddler, and then. Uh-huh within like a month she is the most like the smartest person in the world yeah i love to finish like it it couldn't have been like i'm gonna put a year on it like couldn't been more than a year from start to finish yeah and she does progress one of the one of the first things i said when we walked out was i loved how linear her progression was it was never like uh it never felt like it plateaued at any point it felt like toddler first five minutes and then you get to like you know the halfway point of the movie where she's like on the boat 
with Mark Ruffalo and she's like, all right. Okay. She's like kind of smart. She's using like sentences and she's like reading and she has like an awareness of the world. And then you get a little bit further into Paris and they're in Paris. Right. And you're like, okay. Like she's starting to like become even more aware of herself. And you would think that that kind of the beginning of the final third is where it's like, all right, she's smart enough now. And we're just going to, she's going to be that for the rest of the movie. She's going to be like, maybe not the most self-aware person in the world, but is like vastly improved from where she was in the beginning. But it, it doesn't do that. She continues to evolve. She becomes like this kind of serene, very wise, very intelligent, cunning person by the uh-huh. end. So it just yeah. keeps going along that right, slope. Right. She becomes political by the end. Like she like gains enough cognition to be able to like become a socialist (laughs) you know these are like higher level yeah executive functions and uh most of this movie is about her like her relationships and her having sex that's like most of it right i mean it starts with like uh rami youssef like becomes interested in her they get like they get engaged and then she runs off with mark ruffalo Mark Ruffalo is like a sexual like deviant that she takes interest in for that reason. There's a really funny scene towards the beginning where it's it's sort of, can you explain to me why Mark Ruffalo was at their house in the first place? Was he a lawyer or something? He had some profession, some reason that he was there. Yeah, that was pretty unclear to me. It becomes like not important by the end, but yeah, yeah. Why why he's there? It was. uh, confusing but um there's a scene right in the beginning where she's packing her bags to run off with mark ruffalo and is uh, funny enough very transparent about it with rami she's like i'm gonna i'm gonna go like hang out with this guy for a while yeah, because yeah, yeah. he's he's interesting because she doesn't know and not to. He, yeah and he understandably is really upset by this and he's like i'm gonna you know defend your honor i'm gonna go kick his ass or something like that and What's the line? Do you remember his character's name, Rami? No. Max. Max McCandles. That's such a funny last name. Max McCandles. But she's like, Max, you look flushed. Meaning like his face face is full of blood. She's like, Max, you look flushed. And as am I at the sight of new Max. Like when he... (laughs) (laughs) Right, 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 right. When he gets all like hot and bothered, she likes that because it's kind of like what Ruffalo's doing to her. Uh-huh. A lot of like uh a lot of the movie is just like her, you know, a child's mind completely new and open to the world colliding with social norms. And like what better setting mm-hmm. to that to to test that sandbox that end than like Victorian England times. A yeah, notoriously More specifically, very uptight time period. Yeah. I do like how it's not exclusively Victorian. It is like steampunk. It is a fantasy yeah. sort of world. All the kind of the real problems of the world exist in this fantasy world. It's not immune to like the, the darkness of those times, but it has this like really pretty coat of paint on it. Like I, I'm pretty mm. sure that there's like airships or something or like um, sky cars like on rails, something that never existed in real life. Right, right. But at the same time, like, it doesn't go overboard with it. It's, like, it's not over the top. It doesn't 
kind of it doesn't fixate on that at all it's sort of like a background element it's like oh yeah, yeah we're just we're in a steampunk world by the way yeah yeah don't, I don't pay any that. attention to that mm-hmm. i like how it did that and like all the places they visit are also like are similarly like not quite as they would be like the france and then yeah i forget where else they go uh, they go to other parts of france uh, is it egypt there's like a you know that scene where she's looking out over the the poor people like the the class divide wherever that is it's like alexandria alexandria egypt yeah there you go there you go it's like a very physical condensed depiction of the uh poverty line it's like the the whole island alexandria is like an island that's like twenty thousand square feet it's the tiniest (laughs) thing and like all the rich people live up in this like hotel and then all the poor people live like below them on this like broken staircase thing Uh and it's a very like literal like rich people up here poor people down here and you can contain all of it in like a single camera shot and there's a staircase leading from both realms that's been like destroyed right uh, oh i did want to call out the um talking about comedy earlier all the little um sight gags of the animals in uh, god's house there's a french bulldog that's its head is like sewn to the body of a chicken and then uh-huh. there's like a goose that's on the head of or on the body of some dog. Every single one of those makes me laugh really hard. <laughs> <laughs> like just Agreed. the sight Agreed. of like the bull, bulldog on the chicken is, is so funny in a way that I wasn't <laughs> expecting. Oh, this is interesting. So along the same lines of, you know, her linear progression in intelligence, it parallels the way that she moves like her physicality becomes much more dialed in over time in the very beginning it's so cool in the movie because i think the change is so subtle over time that you almost don't notice it like if you can bear if you compare her at the very beginning with her kind of toddler like movements to the very end obviously a big difference but scene to scene you don't really pick up on it which i, I agree. really like which hats off to Emma Stone, which I think totally. just yeah. like speaks to how good she is that she can make it all really come together. 2024 is coming up all Emma Stone. Yeah. With this yeah. and the curse, man. Right. I mean, and we didn't really talk too much about her in it, but like she did really good. I think she's probably like the best in, the sh- in that show. Benny Safdie called her out as being able to communicate like so much with her uh, face in that show. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um, just between that and this movie, I've come to really respect her as an mm-hmm. actress. So yeah. I would hope that that's recognized, because you know, up until this point, she's only really been like a rom com personality. Um, not exclusively, but that's like kind of the thing that she was known as. She was like, she was in Super Bad. She was in Zombieland, Crazy Stupid Love. She was just like the spunky like redhead that was kind of funny in movies and in the curse and in this she's like a serious like actress and i hope that that trend continues yes i was um reminded recently like remember when like robert downey jr had a lot of buzz for his performance in oppenheimer yeah people were like this is like 
the best performance of his career or something for for absolutely no reason like he didn't do anything in that movie absolutely yeah. nothing and people yeah. would just like <laughs> laud it with praise for like no goddamn reason because yeah because i don't know it's because he's but, been like, playing iron man for so long that was my impression is that like the guy was finally not playing iron man and doing and something their serious yeah but like this is good this is a challenging role object it is objectively good as is the curse both challenging and like uh-huh. done with mastery yeah very sexual performance like that's lots of nudity lots of sex scenes oh my um, gosh let's let's talk for a second i mean if you're where i'm at like the sex has really started to pick up on screen here <laughs> i suppose that's why i brought it up yeah um, furious jumping furious jumping which is a good like um safer work way to refer to it so our videos get flagged. <laughs> but there's there's sexual scenes furious jumping scenes in the movie where it's like a wide angle both actors are like seemingly com- really in real life completely nude doing uh-huh. like the motions of sex and it's like what are they just having s- sex on camera like it, it, it doesn't seem like you could do it any other way, right? The scenes are that like uh, explicit looking to me, right? Right. Like you have to think about like the environment that the actors are in uh, filming that. You're like, what are they doing? Like they have to, <laughs> they can't be just faking that, right? Just thinking about like what Emma Stone and Mark Ruffalo are thinking in those scenes. I'm like they're putting themselves in a very like vulnerable position to have like such extended sex scenes and it's like in their sex scenes that their energy isn't like romantic passion it's like bunny humping you know yeah primal very explicit it's funny because i was just editing our basic instinct episode and we had a lot of the same kind of talking points (laughs) see those are like very kind of like romanticized sex this this is like just flesh moving right it is furious jumping and Emma Stone's character treats it that way. It's like an activity yeah. that has no bearing on the relationship. It's a very sterilized act. Right, right. Which is sort of a pure way to think about sex. It's sort of ironically like an adult way to think about It's a pretty that. contemporary way of looking at it before, mm-hmm. you know, a post-sexual revolution. Right. anything short of romantic sex was seen as like deviant sex yeah yeah it reminds me of like the like the scene where she discovers masturbation i think is like encapsulates all this pretty well where she's just like playing around with a fruit and then like discovers that it feels good to kind of like yeah put it down there i had an embarrassing uh laugh during that scene I think it's like an avocado or something she yeah. puts between her legs. And we were in a pretty full theater, surprisingly. <laughs> I uh, was, it was like a Monday night and I was not expecting the theater. It was just some random AMC to be almost full of, you know, millennial aged people. And during the avocado bit, I very audibly would just like laughed pretty loud. Like one kind of sharp, like that filled the theater. And I was completely by myself. Oh, that really? reaction yeah um, no it, we were pretty in sync for everything else but uh that one scene i 
I laughed. In that moment, I, I don't like, think that, that it was an inappropriate laugh. I just don't think anyone agreed with me. Not in retrospect, because like in retrospect, like that's where the, a lot of the comedy in the movie was. But at that time, that was like the first scene of her sexual awakening was right. the masturbating scene, right? So you're like, where is this going? Like this is because it's already like super weird. It's a baby's brain. Yeah, um, she's basically like a mentally handicapped person. It's just all of it is like putting yeah. you on on your toes. Yeah. They dropped the hard R word earlier. You're like, what am I doing here? That's right. Yeah. I laughed at that too. I laughed not because I find that word funny. I laughed because of how nonchalantly it's thrown into the dialogue. Yeah. It's just like it totally blindsides you. But remember like uh, just to kind of cap off the masturbation scene, like the punchline to that was that she goes back and like finds a more phallic shaped vegetable, like a cucumber or something. Because at first, it's just like a round fruit. I love uh, this scene right here. It's like early in, not Paris. I think they're still in England when he's when she's just hanging out with Mark Ruffalo at the uh, hotel. I believe they're in Lisbon, which is a city in France. Lisbon. I think that's actually where oh, okay. they Not Paris. There I you go. Think. But she's, there's just this one scene where she's like at a bar. But she just points to another person at the bar looking at the bartender but pointing at another person just gesturing that like that's the sort of drink that she wants uh-huh and i just thought that i just thought that was really a really funny way to order a drink no <laughs> words exchanged you just like i, th- I thought the that meant that she point. had already done that before like she had done that enough times to where like the bartender knew what to do i feel like in this world it could be either thing either yeah yeah Everyone's so strange in this movie, uh, in this world, and in Yathamos movies, so it would make sense that the bartender just knew what to do. Uh-huh. I'll have what he's having. Right. I'm watching the Dan scene right now, that was yeah. pretty good. Her hair is so long. It really, like, stood out during this scene. It's, like, to her butt, and it's black. It's one thing that you don't really realize watching this is, you know, in The Curse and in real life... Emma Stone is like a redhead, but in this movie she has like jet black hair, like a monster, like a vampire almost. The movie, so the movie feels kind of. I guess it, it's partially because of just the Victorian era thing. It, it feels very gothic. She's like showing him his, her tattoos. Yeah. That she got. Yeah. His he's so funny. Like Mark he's Ruffalo. like slamming his head on the on the bar. Oh my gosh! Watching him get like slowly more and more exasperated. Yeah. It's just like was the for me the best arc in the whole movie that's that's what i really enjoyed yeah he does such a good job we're talking about emma stone like he does such an amazing job too it's funny because i don't know if it's in a subversion of expectations but you know the you start off with mark ruffalo basically being like a hound dog showing up at this house and stealing this woman for his own like sexual proclivities he's getting his wish like he he ran away to this hotel and he's getting to spend all of this time with this woman who only wants to have sex with him but like it quickly like backfires right like it it, it becomes too much she's too much for him right in the end garrick we are waiting when garrick we are waiting when that just popped up on the Oh, yeah, I see that. As a text. kind of want to go to slotslights.net. 
What a theater did you see this in? Uh, my local your AMC. Yeah. It, it is the one by your house, right? On um, uh-huh. what's that street? Bay Street. Bay Street. Yeah, it was good. I got a, a couple of AMC gift cards for Christmas, and it paid for the outing. Oh, nice. And I have it all timed out now. We leave the house when the showing starts and we drive over to the theater and like i know which floor to go to in the parking so that you just walk directly into the theater very and nice we, and we snuck in a bunch of stuff we just brought it in a bag <laughs> nice and walked right into our theater i i, I got an iced coffee for stacy like in a mason jar and i and for me i had a thermos of coffee it was like a good mm-hmm. daytime showing very nice did you see a triangle of sadness i think that's the name of the i did movie. yeah i did yeah um okay this reminded me of that just because of rich people on a boat right that movie is a little bit more of a subtle commentary on a class actually mm-hmm. i don't know i take that back the movie is actually pretty transparent about its commentary Not subtle. on class at certain points this is the th- this is a more subtle I wow. say subtle because that movie is like visually subtle, Triangle of Sadness. This movie is like, bam, it is leaping off of the screen with its visuals, yeah. which I, I guess it just requires a little bit more triangulation to get the uh, the message than the other movie. Triangle of Sadness was a, I liked it uh, quite a bit. I uh, that, I appreciated was... how like, you know, that's also a movie that had the title card sections. Remember that? I don't remember that part, but I believe I... you. I appreciated like how crazy it went. Like I did not think it was going to go where it went by the end, where they're like crash landed. Yeah, it has like kind of three distinct parts. It's like pre-boat, boat, desert island in that movie, and then the desert island stuff is is great because the 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 power dynamic shifts on the island, like who yes. you're paying attention to in the movie, shifts for that reason. Like the uh-huh. maid becomes like a very integral character in the she whole becomes story. a leader yeah and then and cool. i love like where and then she gets to be basically like like making the men like her bitches sex slaves sex or at least, she's like or at least that one i'm a tr- i'm attracted to you you're my boyfriend now yeah 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 and she like, becomes and his like current a girlfriend is chieftain. like yeah 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 which is similar and like in the way that this movie kind of it, it's like a hypothetical what would happen if there just was a pure being that came into this world and like what are the consequences sexually and socially of that yeah she's sort of um it's it's helped by the fantasy mechanic of her being able to develop very rapidly in a way that a child could not you know but it is a fun thought experiment that she's sort of unhindered because she is childlike by any expectations or norms of the society that she's brought into. Mm-hmm. She fast tracks her way to socialism. It's cool. Cause like kids have that component too, right? Where kids are very like innocent and often come to the right conclusions on their own because they are unburdened by societal expectations. Um, mm-hmm. But they're kids at the end of the day, they're kids and they will remain kids for many, many years. And society has an opportunity to really like suppress their spirit in that amount of time. And uh, Emma Stone is she jump she leaps over that portion. She leaps over yeah. that because she's in an adult body, but also like her brain is supernaturally growing. And because she has full autonomy too. There's like nobody to tell her what to think or what's right or wrong. She wouldn't listen anyways. Yeah, 
she calls him how she sees it. Right. She's a straight um, talker. The Republican Party would love her, at least until she got to <laughs> socialism. I baby brained. I, I think they would they would like her. Um, Gerard Carmichael is in the movie. What you think Who's of that, that dude? He's the the black guy. He's a comedian. He came out to prominence maybe a few years ago. He had a special where he came out as gay in the special. Oh, interesting. And it was a really good special too. Like I'd recommend. I kind of spoiled it, but yeah, I love his character. I'll say that it's not surprising to me that he's a comedian. He's like the nihilist. He represents yes. like the idea of, yes. of nihilism yes. in the whole movie, which is funny because I identify the most with him in the movie. <laughs> There's like a part when um, you know he's sort of like te- he's teasing his ideologies to Emma Stone. What's her character's name? Bella. I'm surprised we've gone this long without saying her name, Bella. He's teasing his ideologies to her, which are mostly negative, as you do when you're a nihilist. But uh, when he starts to get more honest with her, he's like, don't put any stock in humanity. Like, we're a fucked species or something. Uh Everything's gone to shit. She's just like, whatever his name is, like, you're just a, a silly, broken little boy. Like, the world has really just uh, broken your spirit. Something like uh-huh. that. And in yeah, the moment, yeah, yeah. I'm like, Emma Stone is, like, talking to me. I'm like, yeah, I am a l- broken little boy. Yeah. I just, I, I'm super cynical about the world. Yeah, I agree. I, mean, I, had, I had the same thought process, too. Um, he stands in, I think, a lot for, like, uh, for, for an audience, for a modern audience. Yeah. The cynic. It was helpful, uh, honestly, I mean, it was the movie. I think is overall pretty positive, all things considered. So it was it was nice to have an antidote to my nihilism in mm-hmm. Bella Baxter. I liked how he admitted that like the reason he was doing all this stuff to her was kind of because like like it, it, he sees her and she's like so naive, and he kind of can't stand it. So he's like, oh, I'm gonna burst your bubble a little bit. <laughs> like uh-huh. telling uh-huh. by telling her all this shit and i can understand the impulse but it backfires because she like uh, she's sort of demonstrates like a larger wisdom which is just like nah like you're just a cynic mm-hmm. like that's all you are and then she gives away all their money that, that was a funny scene there's like where like they're they don't have any money we have money so yeah. i'm gonna give them our money there's something there because like she doesn't even do that she gives it to those sailors who you know most likely just stole it themselves that's yeah yeah that's what it implies so i don't know there's something there about like her naivete being an actual problem in that moment Uh uh-huh where it's like the intentions were really good sort of mirrors her character in the curse now that i'm thinking about it very interesting that is Um, but yeah like she best of intentions pure character all the stuff we've been saying so far but at the end of the day she still gives like money to hooligans who Uh will not use it for good is it a commentary on charity maybe maybe i don't know maybe just be more careful about who you give the money to i loved how i just broke mark ruffalo yeah yeah it was because he was already kind of on a downward spiral before that and the the money was like the one thing that was gonna pull him out of it and she she took it away from him so fast Uh, i love how the ship captain 
just like immediately was like well if you don't have any money then fuck you like you're trash to us we're we're gonna like imprison you or something this reminds me um i finished uh fired on mars nice man i am hooked on that show yeah in a way that i haven't been in a for a show in a while like as soon as i finished the last episode i immediately was like on the internet like season two when is it where is it nice nice whatever you uh what's the word on that because i wouldn't uh i didn't do too much research i just saw like a reddit post that said renewed for two seasons allegedly ah two more yeah great um as it should be yeah big fan what a great finale dude that was like such a dramatic action-oriented finale with like the sandstorm and everything the movie really sort of like reels you in or the show uh reels you in because you think it's just another adult uh animated show like it's gonna be a funny um you know as any adult animated thing is it's just a comedy on its face and it is in a lot of ways but it really like yeah. has a lot of dramatic elements that yeah uh, yeah hook you and that, like, you want to see the conclusion of it's it's a proper uh, dramedy throughout. Yeah. It. Yeah. I think that Fired on Mars does so much better what BoJack Horseman was trying to do in its mm-hmm. its early stages. And I, I I think I'll go to my grave saying that I just I think that BoJack Horseman is not that great. Yeah, I don't think it's that great either. We, in the past, have talked about the first season not being great, but I think I'm going to just say that I think the whole show is mediocre at best. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I'm not I'm not here to die on that hill defending BoJack Horseman, and I will. Good. That, uh, just another thing about Fired on Mars, the montage scene, like, where he's, like, super depressed, and then he gets, like, a spurt of motivation. Yes. He's like, I'm going to turn my life around. Yes. And then, like... Within the same episodes, like that just crashes and he like goes like within like, the same like, montage it crashes. The part of yeah, the yeah, yeah, the yeah, last yeah. third of the montage is the inspiration wearing off and him <laughs> like deteriorating further. <laughs> right, right. I thought that, that was, was so funny. That was genius, dude. I've never seen something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Usually like the hype up montage goes well. Right, right, right. The fact that it's contained in the montage is the is the secret sauce. So funny. Yeah. Just saw the first uh, sex solicitation scene here with that like super old or skinny weird looking guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She falls into prostitution like once again as a baby minded, open minded person where she's like, I like sex. I need money. There you go. If if not for the the risk of disease that would be even more prominent in you know this Ugh. time in yeah. history ye oldie syphilis right it would actually be like smart you know yeah uh they say very straight up it's like this is the quickest way to money and as long as you know you don't care too much about the act itself or like any sort of shame surrounding it knock yourself out the issue is that the more times that it happens, the greater the risk of infection and infecting those around you. Yeah. So ultimately pretty irresponsible. But if you could and, get and rid of the illness part of it, you're in business. 
I know. And it also broke Mark Ruffalo's braid. I love that when she like gets back to him on that bench. He's like, yeah. that's the worst thing that yeah. you could do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's when they finally split ways. The funniest, I, th- I think the funniest laugh out loud moment in the movie is when she sort of rises in the, what do you call it? Brothel. Uh, she becomes like, you know, a known person within that. She's made good money. She has like an established career and presence in that house. And uh, he's still on the street. He's still like homeless. And he comes like beckoning at her window one night and he's just oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yelling. He's not saying anything. He's just, ah, no words. I think that was if the it, biggest it, laugh for me. If, if it would have been a, like a couple hundred years in the future, he would have like definitely had the stereo blasting yeah, yeah. the music. Right. But he didn't have that. So that was my favorite part of the movie. The montage of, of all the different men that she slept with. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why is There was that? that like dad who like brought, I mean, they were just like such great scenes. Like, all the men looked super interesting and, like, very, I don't know. The dad with the children, that was the most potentially problematic thing I saw in the movie. Easily. Even despite all the kind of taboo themes that we've talked about so far. I was paying very close attention to see if the... Because it was a, a full nude, like, sex scene, like anything else in the movie... And then there were also just kids there. And I was paying very close attention to the editing to see if the like those two kids and the uh, the adults were in the same frame during ah. that scene. And they are not. Uh, and I think that that's important because I think if they were, the movie starts to be classified as something else entirely and potentially illegal. Simply by the children's presence in the Uh same like image as as the nudity can't Um, expose children to nudity no so it was faked hopefully such a weird concept the only other thing that it that it brings to mind is like (laughs) one episode of louis when i think it's like a flashback to when he's a kid and like his dad is like having the birds and bees talk with them and he's like explain but it's like a talk about like how to have sex and like what to do and for it's a mechanical like explana- make- explanation of yeah, the yeah, act. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I forget what the lead up to is, but like the, the final of it is like, and then you touch them and they explode. <laughs> and then he, and then he tells like the little kid Louie is like, okay, now repeat it back to me. <laughs> what did you this- think of the the final act coming back to London and then like with the the crazy general former husband character who shows up. Uh huh with the gun the that character is equal parts really scary but like the the way in which the gun is used as a comedic prop is really funny to me uh-huh. like at every instance he's like pulling out the gun like pointing it at his staff pointing it at uh emma stone like yeah, for yeah, the, yeah. the the smallest like mundane things right uh, well the reason he does it is because like he suspects and i believe him that his house is on the point of revolt or a mutiny against him that his like servants are going to kill him or something <laughs> and then yeah. like as as that scene as the scene progresses they're like oh probably yeah rightfully i think i missed that that idea but 
still funny. Just the idea that you have to, like, be on defense. So, like, I think, like, he's rightfully on the defense in his own household. Uh-huh. But I, that's just such a funny idea that you're like, oh, yeah, dude, my servants, they're going to kill me. <laughs> right. It, that's interesting because it sort of uh, it changes the dynamic in which I, I see that character a little. I think I prefer my version where the guy just has an affinity for guns as uh-huh. uh, as a very casual negotiation device. Well, I, I think that's I think that's also true. It's sort of like Michael Michael Scott in The Office when he's doing improv, and he's like, "What's the most exciting thing that could happen in any scene? Think about it. Pulling it. Some someone has a gun. <laughs> that is, that is that character. What? Well, there is that line towards the end of that scene where he's like, "Well, you forced me now to get the gun out. Like, it doesn't take very much, uh, like of her putting up a defense before uh-huh. he's just like, "Well, the gun's out now, so we're doing right. what I say, right." Which is funny. What did Michael whisper to you? He said he has a gun, but he just can't show it to me. <laughs> what do you think of the like matron, like brothel owner character? Madam, oh yeah, great what's character. Her, what's her name? She has like a biting thing. She likes to bite Emma Stone, which is a little weird. Oh yeah, why? Well, yeah, what was that? There were a lot of know. weird things happening that I just didn't really dwell on that too much yeah but she's an interesting character she sort of um she's a nice mile marker in bella collecting wisdom from all of these characters throughout and like that character teaches her about sort of the how do i want to what's the word i'm looking for autonomy uh power that comes from sex like you can wield sex as like a, a key to your destiny that's how her and all of her uh, the people who live in her house view it at least mm-hmm. it's like a way of taking control in a male dominated society so that's fun it's a little like hardcore dose of feminism i'm at that midway point of the movie but i also I'm, recall I like- the scene where she's like explaining to her because like emma stone doesn't want to have like wants to be able to choose who she has sex with uh-huh and the mistress basically has to like sit her down and be like this is a business and like she shows her that baby in that scene Uh she's like if you don't conform to like the business that we're doing here like this baby doesn't get the yeah yeah it's a little bit of both it's a a little bit of both yeah it's uh it's empowering but it's also kind of capitalistic and Uh you have to earn your worth because i think it was supposed to be a little bit of both it can't be a completely like triumphant scene because like it ultimately is like also a not great institution it's not a great condition that those women find themselves in right um you know in real life they're probably abused and right dejected how does she get out of it finally Uh, i just saw that scene i mean it basically cuts from her being in the brothel and then like going back to the house and they established that you know she has that money for emergencies right um from god his name is god win by the way not god freed like i said earlier and she also obviously made some money from the brothel and then she gets the postcard that he's on his deathbed and that just prompts her ah, coming right, home right so i think that's what happens but i i think like the brothel is like where she like her last stage of maturation it's also where she had that friend that introduced her into politics. So like 
Right. And I, I don't know, did, does she like read a lot during that scene? Because I'm looking at a scene now towards the end and she's like, she begins reading at a certain point. It's actually on the boat, if I recall now. Right. But she starts like engaging in literature and philosophy. She has a conversation with Gerard Carmichael about it. But basically this is when she becomes a uh, intellectual. Right. Once she returns home, she's like a completely like fully formed human being. That has like thoughts and ideas and opinions on how things should be. Have you seen a Rami Yusuf's show? It's just called Rami. Rami. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I've seen You've watched every. It? Yeah, I've seen. I feel like all of the show, unless there's a new season that I'd have to ask Grace. Grace introduced me to that show. Big fan. Uh-huh. I like it a lot. Yeah, it's a good show. Good show. He like fucks his cousin in that. That's like one of the main things oh, I remember. Yeah. yeah, I remember liking that show. I remember liking him. He's great. I don't know what it is about his, like, baby face, but... In the show, he's, like, extremely believable. I wouldn't be surprised if he said that his portrayal in that show is as close to his real life as possible. Or at least his real persona. Yeah. I think they made a spinoff show of, like, his cousin. The kind of... He has, like, a kind of heavier set cousin who just, like, reminds me of, like, DJ Khalid kind of Khaled. that persona Khaled and I just could not be any less interested in watching anything sounds not interesting the general husband character has the exact same facial hair as me does he look like Colin Farrell in like the lobster or something yeah kind of I could see that what do you think about this dynamic where he reveals sort of what like why her character like before she committed suicide and the general like why they were together in the first place mm-hmm. there's that scene where she was like why like why did we even hang out what was the thing that connected us and he brings out the maid with the soup and forces her to with uh, he like uses the dog to scare her and she spills the soup and he thinks that that's hilarious and he says something like you and i love to do this sort of thing we love to like play pranks or make people feel bad or like we like seeing other people suffer it's like Uh our shared sense of or was our shared sense of humor is that the same like did you pick up on that is that what he was saying i don't recall that exact that he said it that way it's something like that it's like we share something like like that we share like humor or something i wonder if that's true because i have to remind myself that this is not this is not like Emma Stone's character with amnesia. This is like a completely different person. This is her baby. Right. It it makes this sequence even stranger because technically speaking, uh, he is her father. Yeah. uh, In addition to her husband. Yeah. I thought of that when they ran off together, you know. Yeah. From the wedding, the graduate style. I'm like, you don't want to get back together with him. He's your dad. Right. Oh, they talk about, I forgot about this. They, There's some sort of secret meeting with a doctor that's, they're talking about some sort of vaginal mutilation. He brings out that tool that I'm not yeah. exactly sure what it's for, but you can I think it's like the cut together. off parts of it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think of the ending that they like, what do they do? They put his brain into a dog or something? They put a goat's brain in his body in his body yes yeah so he 
becomes a goat. There's like that, <laughs> there's a shot where he's like in the backyard as the goat, just grazing. And then he just like spaces off and looks directly at the camera and the camera zooms in on him like totally dead-eyed. Big laugh from the audience in that moment. <laughs> I didn't have much to say about the ending really. It just kind of wraps up and in a nice bow. What did we learn, I guess, is the question here. Because the movie is about self-discovery and identity and morals unhindered by society. So did you learn something from Bella Baxter? You know, she's triumphant in the end. So in the face of society, like that husband is like a, is is like represents society and patriarchy in particular. She, she comes up against like her ultimate villain where like every, every adversity that she's faced up until that point, sort of her, the fact that she's a beautiful woman and her naivety has like, let her escape it or not have to deal with the consequences directly. And mm-hmm. that's why she so willfully goes with him. And it turns out to be the most jeopardizing situation that she's in, in the whole movie. Like she's yeah, under yeah, yeah. a real threat of danger with him uh-huh. that she isn't in the rest of the movie. And she travels like all over Europe and is with like a lot of unsavory characters. And that's the most danger that she's, that she's in only real yeah. danger so that's and that is funny how she she launches herself head first into it like the whole time she's kind of this archetype of and you see this a lot in movies like the character that just goes with the flow and uh-huh. they'll end up in different situations but everything works out because they just like have grace and right. they're never punished for this decision but that like decision to leave the wedding and go to this guy like very immediately was like you made a bad decision. Yeah, it's the first time that the, the consequences catch up with her. Um, right, right. I and saw then t- the resolution to that is, you know, getting back home safely, and I think she gets married to Rami, and that's the conclusion. It's good that she faced that, though, at the stage of development that she was at, because she could handle it. She, like, had the, the tools uh, to deal with that guy, the intellectual tools. Uh, it would have been... Had she in- encountered that guy much earlier in the movie, it would have been a, a real bad situation. Probably would have become like a slave. I saw a TikTok a lo- uh, recently that was like, are you the type of person who's like a go-with-the-flow type of person but have only recently realized that the flow was just the plan that your type a friend put together the whole time that there was no flow that you were just following that someone else Uh just created the flow and you're just a lazy piece of shit that's funny they were like i need to send so many apology letters you and i are kind of like the type a friend i think we're usually trying to like dial in plans so i related to that nice i I think i have a foot in both i can also i'm also very much go with the flow i can do both I felt like Bella Baxter was a nice it was a nice person for me to learn from. Going back to that uh, thing that she said to Jared Carmichael, where she was just like, you're a broken little boy who <laughs> just hasn't given like the brighter sides of life like the enough time of day. It's not what she said, but that was the message that I heard. It was nice to see uh, a funny movie where the character's whole thing is this 
naive child butting up against real world problems but because Mm -hmm. of their purity being able to deal with it in not even by the end a naive way but a healthy thoughtful way Mm. so yeah uh, i guess uh does she retain her optimism by the end despite all the trials and tribulations seems to me i mean they have a happy little family at god's house by the end they have kind of this weird seemingly polygamous thing going on because she has her friend who uh was sort of a, a sexual partner in addition to being her friend who is another prostitute they she lives with them now oh yeah and rami is there seemingly like their relationship is still some kind of love oriented one and then the the general is also there but he's now a goat which is really funny and then the we didn't even Uh talk about her but the new like uh bella 2.0 is there after bella leaves you know god and rami oh yeah yeah they like do a, a second version who seemingly never even begins to approach the level that Bella does. I'm not really sure like what her situation was. Like if they put another I'm like, baby. were they able to find a, they were able to do another baby in the mother thing. Like what yeah. are the chances of that? Yeah. yeah not yeah. sure. That actress. She's is the one once from a, once upon a time in Hollywood. Yeah. 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 I was, I was just about to say that. Nice. Same wavelength. Um, and she's, has like her mom or parents or something are are famous or something like that a nepo baby something like that yeah yeah they they're all like they have their nice little happy family and they're all just hanging out in the garden together so it, it seems like a happily ever after kind of ending despite all of the adversity everybody's cool and it's the most like modern and not modern but like mature way that everybody sort of stays in the equation like uh seemingly rami and uh, bella are not exclusively monogamous or married like the friend is still allowed to live there and be part of their lives and is probably still kind of some kind of sexual partner so there's some uh-huh. non-traditional stuff going on there and then uh her former abuser who is just neutered uh, mentally is now also there. <laughs> he gets to he gets to be a part of the family as well. Is is the goat now the the general? I wanted to ask that. Did they swap? So there's like yeah, the goat question. in the general's body. You never it. see, but uh, I don't remember. If, yeah, good question. The goat's just desperately trying to pick up a gun with its hoof. <laughs> <laughs> I love Rami's character, like very he's also like this very pure guy like kind of like very sweet guy yes and uh and like he's along for all this craziness just because like for whatever reason he's very attached to bell and he also really uh admires godwin Ah, he like he uh finds him to be like a genius yeah i liked him I liked him a lot in this movie. Where would you put this against the other Yorgos movies? Yathamos. No, oh, you said his first name, Yorgos. Uh-huh. Yeah. I I think I just realized I've been saying his his name wrong. I've been saying Yathamos, and his name is Lanthimos. Lanthimos. Yorgos Lanthimos. 
I all, I was just smashing his two names together. Yorthamos. Uh, I was saying uh, Yathamos, but his name is Yorgos Lanthamos, whatever. And I <laughs> neglected to even try to say his name up until now, and then I chickened out by just using his first name. Uh, it's sort of like that Yodorowsky, you know, we always say his name Yodorowsky, but... I've never seen any indication on paper that that's how you would say that name. I just assume that's that's how you say it. It's spelled with a J. It's pretty good. Yeah. And and he's Mexican. Alejandro Yodorowski. And so like the Argentinian J should make Mexican, yeah. Should make like a an H sound. Yodorowski. Yodorowski. Not yo like yo. a Y. Anyways, to answer your question, I would I would put this squarely above the favorite um which Again, might not be a popular opinion. I can't really gauge like where the favorite falls among people who like his movies. But it's but not your favorite. It is not my favorite. Not my favorite. <laughs> as far as the other three, Dogtooth, I'm going to need to watch again. That's the one thing that I've taken away from this movie, if anything. i got to watch Dogtooth again. But uh, The Sacred Deer and The Lobster... I really like both of those movies, but I think that I could put this movie potentially at the top, and it would be competing with The Lobster directly. I think that depending on my mood, I I could easily watch The Lobster or this. Uh-huh. They're both like straight comedies or uh, black comedies, and then they both have wacky themes. The Lobster has more of that like sterile acting thing in it than this one does which i like a lot but this one might be funnier so that's my answer it's it's the lobster or this one at the top and then it's sacred deer dogtooth maybe and then at the very bottom is the favorite for me i i liked it a lot it's good to see him be able to do different things the lobster and sacred deer are like totally very similar movies they both like those two are of a of a kind they're the favorite yeah yeah and they they both have that kind of stilted acting to a Mm -hmm. max the favorite is kind of more realistic acting it's stilted to the extent that like people of that time and place are kind of like stereotypically thought of being kind of like rigid yeah, don't they? Yeah, they kind of British people. The people in the favorite aren't. Don't they have kind of modern affectations too? That they kind of talk like more modern people, as opposed to Victorian era people. I'm not sure. I don't know. I think they have the accents, but I'm not sure. They use like words and phrases that like wouldn't be common back then. I think is what I'm getting huh. at. But continue. Yeah, I'm not sure. And, and and this movie to me branches out in in a big way. It kind of leaves behind. It still has that kind of Victorian era um, acting style, but it's honestly not as stilted as Lobster or Sacred Deer. Like to me, no, not at all. In between in between those two, the favorite and poor things, he's kind of like left that niche. And to me, this is the most the movie that stands apart from the rest of his filmography of what i've seen of it yeah and it's great i'm all here for it yeah i think i agree it's a great marriage of the stuff that he does really well which is wacky sort of reality adjacent sort of acting and hyper stylization 
it's a uh, it's a very pretty movie on top of being weird like his other stuff is mm. yeah and it's funny on its face hilarious just and i like funny things more it than doesn't. anything else i think i'm just a big fan of laughing and being tickled it's a universal medicine but that's just, just me you know i i'm a little bit i'm a, i'm I'm kind of a little different than the rest of them, you know. I like to laugh. That's just... Hey, sue me. Anything keeping you happy this week? Not really. We kind of... Just, we started... We, we try to start watch to watch MASH, that old 70s TV show. Oh, man. That's a tough one for me to watch. Why? There's something about the melancholy nature of the way that that show... Like, it oscillates between comedy and tragedy and then also just the the music in the beginning and it was on daytime tv uh-huh. and hearing that that theme music like in at like 2 p.m there's something about it that's like deeply depressing i, yeah. I don't i don't really know what it is but well it might be because a song is titled suicide is painless is that what it's the real name of that song wow I yeah I I've always had like kind of a guttural reaction to that show that's been unpleasant so I've never uh-huh. watched it. But you're trying? I have a yeah, we were trying. Uh, I might not, I might watch not it. Not successfully or <laughs> Yeah, not successfully. I like it a lot. We were watching it over at my sister's place in California and I was just like we were just watching it somewhere in the middle of the series and I was just like struck by how funny it was and how uh-huh. like good the jokes were and i like when it goes serious you know i, I really i think, I think that what i'm describing really well. is like the thing that it's an acclaimed show right like people like that element of it that mm-hmm. it's it juggles comedy and kind of a almost a contemporary criticism of vietnam of war. is that what it's doing korea korea okay um, but you know, it could that that could easily I, I like be mapped like, onto Vietnam because that was. It's absolutely going. not like I, I like the way that it treats war. It's a very like liberal-minded way of looking at it. There's not a trace of kind of like American patriotism, you know, exceptionalism or patriotism at yeah. at all. Um, like the two main, like the main character, Hawkeye and the rest of the crew, like they all hate the war, you know, like they don't want to be there. Um, and the times that they shine the most is when they're doing their job, which is just like a, a very morally and ambiguously helping people and saving people's lives. Yeah. It's yeah. the, it's the best and worst job to have in war is the, the medic. Uh, Cause you're, you're sort of absolved by the, the issues of war by default. That's cool. Is that the only thing? Mash? Uh, yesterday I watched Jiro Dreams of Sushi. It's like a documentary. Okay. The only reason I know about it is because it's it was spoofed on Documentary Now. That's where they got their episode. Juan likes rice and chicken. Uh, and it was a good documentary. It was just like about this like 80-year-old sushi master. And he hmm. runs this little shop. And he's like... In Japan. Very Japanese. Yeah. That's cool. He's like all about mastering his craft. And he's like very hard on his apprentices and is like a perfectionist. Very and it's like at the end of the day, they're just like slicing some fish and putting it on yeah, some rice. Yeah. But like he's put his whole life into it. 
That's great. It's, it's good. It's good. Makes me think of that character in um, Kill Bill. The uh, he's the Hitori Hanzo. He's like the sword maker, but he also oh has yeah like yeah a, a sushi shop exactly. And he's very mean to his uh, subordinate. Takes his uh, job really seriously. Oh, I forgot that that he did sushi. Yeah, all this Tarantino talk is making me want to turn on one of his movies. Yeah, what would you watch if you were to do that? Right this second. I'm always within like probably a four month period at minimum of watching one of his movies. And I think most recently I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Before that, it was probably Kill Bill. So I guess I'm due for like Inglorious Bastards or Pulp Fiction. The movie that I've uh, seen the least of his is The Hateful Eight. Okay. I don't really have a lot of desire to turn that one on. It's like the least yeah. rewatchable for me. Yeah. Jackie Brown is fucking awesome. It's been a while since I've seen Reservoir Dogs, but I do like it. Hateful Eight's at the bottom. Mr. Pink. If I was to rewatch any, I would probably rewatch Inglorious Bastards. I think that's the best one out of the whole lineup. I think that's the best one. It's my personal favorite, too. Pulp Fiction's great, too. His movies are like candy to me. I think I made this comment when we watched Once Upon a Time recently. It's because I think I just turned it on casually. And it's one of those movies where like, if it's just on, if we're like, let's just turn this movie on and we're doing something else, I will actively stop what I'm doing and go and watch that movie. I will Uh sit. You can't help it. Sit my ass on the couch and pay attention. Anything making me happy. Well, you know what was cool about this movie? Poor Things. I watched it right as I was starting a, a new playthrough of Bioshock Infinite. You ever played that game? Oh, nice. So it fits. No, no. But you're aware it's like now. the steampunk themes are present. I really forgot that I, I was doing a Bioshock replay of the first game the last couple months, and then I just finished it and started playing Infinite recently. I forgot how, like, politically oriented those games are. Oh, yeah. They have, like, real messages about capitalism and religion and that sort of thing. Uh, Like, the first one, the premise is, you know, it's a, a city under the ocean that was started by this guy who hated... His name is Andrew Ryan, and he was just like a tried and true capitalist, and he hated regulation, like government interference. Like he rejected all modern forms of of government and one of the purest form of a free market. So he built a city under the ocean. And the game, like that theme is like throughout the game. And there's all this like weird sort of hybrid imagery of communism along with that. Like there are these big like bronze statues with like chains and and hammers and stuff. And then in the second game, it's about like zealots, like religious icons or self-proclaimed prophets. And then there's also this weird like race thing. Like the, the second game is like heavily racist. You've never played it, either of them? No. Oh. No. You really should, man. Those games, like, rule by any standard. But 
just as a quick aside, the in the second game, there's this whole subplot about this, you know, black people are oppressed like they would be in that era. And there's like kind of a revolution led by a black woman. And there are all these like depictions by the ruling class of the uh, revolutionaries that are like super racist, you know, just mm-hmm. think Jim Crow style illustrations. And there's <laughs> so much of it that I started to question like if it was whether or not your character comes out on top as defeating the racists, it seems like a little questionable that it's in the game at all because of how Uh racist it is. It's like some game designer is in a studio somewhere drawing this for a game, but it's a little, (laughs) it's a little on the nose. (laughs) When was it released? I think like 2012, something like that. Uh, Yeah, that's funny. You have to like invent racist propaganda for your game. Yeah. Like they're a little too good at it. It's like inferior species. Like that's what, that's what the character says. (laughs) That's not, that's not me. You know, that's not me. Then I watched Fired on Mars. Also very good. We're watching, uh, we've been watching Breaking Bad with Erica. That was her her first time watching it. We're on the last season now, which is fun. I hadn't realized this before in my other watch throughs of Breaking Bad, but the season five, I think it is, which is the last season. That's the season right after uh, where he blows up Gus Freen, that finale episode where you see Gus like walk out of the room and his half of his face is blown up. The, the, the last season is pretty unnecessary in total. Everything's pretty resolved by the previous season. The last season is just sort of icing on the cake. And I hadn't really realized that before. Like Jesse Plemons, he shows up for the first time in the last season. He's only in that season. All of the subplots with like the the racist uncles, the rival meth manufacturers, that uh, group that Jesse Plemons is with, which is like the exterminators. All of that is just contained in season five. It just sprouts up all of these like brand new subplots and then resolves them like by the end of the season, mm. which makes this that last season really exciting to watch. It's very like sporadic compared to the the slower previous seasons. But yeah. I realized that like in the context of when that show came out, it seems like if you watch the Gus episode. Like that would be it. Like the the show is over at that point. So the season five seems like it was an extra season. Maybe it was planned the whole time, but at a glance it seems like the show was meant to end at season four. Yeah, that that I recall that being my impression too. At the very least that that final season was like so much different than the rest. It kind of seemed like incongruous with Yeah. With the with the rest of it. It doesn't make it less enjoyable, though. I love season five. I love all that, that you're stuff. You're on it now. Yeah, only like that season two five. or three episodes in. Yeah, is he on the run st- starting that season? Like, yeah, everybody, like his family knows that it's him and that kind of thing. Uh, we're not the there out. yet in that okay. season, but that's when that starts. Yeah, got it, got it. Have you watched the the Better Call Saul show? Yeah. It's one of those shows that, like, I was up to date with it for a while, and then 
every time I caught up with the season, I forgot that the show existed at all. And mm. I just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, yeah, I did like a season of it and then I, I decided to not go through with it. And, and I love Bob Odenkirk. Like yeah. I, I love that guy's career. I, I watched him do a podcast, uh, David Cross, the glasses guy. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the podcast uh, where he, have you seen video of this podcast? No, I, I'm pretty sure David Cross wears like a flat build hat. Cause I've seen clips of it online. Yeah. Like recently, podcast. like he just, he just came out with a new one. It's there's just like a handful of episodes. I just, um, I just and said he did one he with so stupid and, in that getup yeah yeah i i've seen him like the way he dresses does he have like a big beard still yeah i think so yeah that's how he's looked but he did a podcast with with uh, dave uh, bob odenkirk and it was a real precious podcast to listen to because like they kind of like uh, have you ever seen their show that they did together mr show i've never seen mr show but i'm aware of it it's like it's the greatest '90s aesthetic, kind of like like early SpongeBob humor, because like a lot of those guys worked mm-hmm. on SpongeBob, including the the voice actor. He's on Mr. Tom show. Kenny. But like Bob and David in this podcast episode are just kind of like riffing back and forth. Like most of the shit they say, they, they they're kind of doing that thing where they're riffing fantastical things like nothing they say is real like they're not having a real human conversation they're having the conversation of mm-hmm. two wackadoo yeah yeah comedic minds are you and just like creativity like just between them creating nonsense and, and it, was, it was real fun to listen to sounds like fun but you didn't you you weren't hooked by better call Saul. nah yeah it's a far inferior show it was enjoyable some people like it more more well that's just the the wrong opinion i know i don't care who you are that's that's just not a better show than breaking bad there's people walking around they have that opinion it's a good show just not better it's It's not better call Saul. it's a weird phenomenon that that show creates when you're watching it you're like this is great i'm into this and then Uh like it's over and i at least when i was watching it um there were no like i had fully caught up to the show and the new season hadn't been released yet. I don't know if it's still airing or not, but I would get to the end and I would be like, okay, great. And then I'd never think about it again. I had no desire to seek out subsequent seasons. I know, I know exactly what you're talking about specifically with this show. I agree. Mm -hmm. It's, it's that thing. It's, it's a, that thing of like what the, Benny Safdie was saying about how like TV and that shows a little bit old now, but like prestige TV nowadays, like they're able to do this. Like people know how to construct that show now and do it. Yeah. In that form and do it effectively. And conversely, the the audience knows how to watch that show effectively and that you cannot surprise them with anything because they've seen Mm -hmm. that show a million times. Yeah. Anything else making me happy? Oh, I told you I was going to start playing Cyberpunk. I'm excited for that. Oh, yeah. I've been healthily like, re-engaging with video games where I'm like, I'm going to play this game for however many weeks or months to completion. And then I will play the next game for however many weeks mm. or months. And then I will play the next game. Instead of like 
what my usual relationship is where I'll play something and the weight of real life sort of like eats away at me. And I'm like, what am I doing uh-huh. with my time? And I stop playing. Doesn't allow it. you to enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. And I more recently have had a much more pleasant, pure relationship with them, which has been very nice. Thanks for listening. Filmhole is produced by just us, myself and Raul. Our music is by W, that's underscore the word double and two U's. Get Filmhole wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, rate it. If you hate it, maybe don't. Thanks again. See you next time.